This is an AI Group podcast. In this podcast, we'll be discussing the most significant workplace relations issues of the month, November 2019. The full members-only report is available on our website at aigroup.com.au in the policy section under Workplace Relations Policy and Advocacy. With me today to discuss the key aspects of this latest report, I'm speaking with Stephen Smith. Stephen is Head of National Workplace Relations Policy at AI Group, and I'm Tony Melville, Head of AI Group's Communications and Government Affairs. We'll be looking at three issues today, class actions, Project Life Greenfields agreements, and wage underpayments. But first, we'll look at the big issue of the month, really, that's been getting a lot of publicity over the last year or two, but has really peaked in the last few weeks with a, a number of high-profile cases. So wage underpayments is a big report uh, discussing all the various elements of it. But first, we'll look at how risky is it and what should members be doing about it? Yes, well, this area in recent times has perhaps become a lot more risky for various reasons. Firstly, two years ago, the penalties for breaches of awards under the Fair Work Act went up 10 times, uh, and the penalties for failure to keep proper pay records went up 20 times uh, for the maximum penalties. Uh, We've also seen the Victorian and Queensland governments announce changes to their Crimes Acts to criminalise wage underpayments uh, where they are are serious and deliberate. Uh, We've also, of course, uh, seen quite a few major companies self-disclose underpayments that they've discovered to the Fair Work Ombudsman, and this has led to a, a fairly intense public debate. So um, companies really do need to have a good look at this issue and check their payroll uh, systems and rules and make sure that uh, they are complying. Okay. Just before we get into some of the broader issues, just that on that issue of self-disclosure, we we get a a lot of calls to the AI Group advice line about that. So what, what should a company do? Let's say a company has found that over the last two years they've had an underpayment of clerical staff and it's in the thousands of dollars, not the you know the tens of thousands, not the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Do they have to immediately get on the phone to the Fair Work Ombudsman? Uh, no, there's nothing in the legislation that requires uh, disclosure to the Fair Work uh, Ombudsman. So if an issue is discovered and the issue is... Uh, corrected and resolved at the enterprise level, uh, that uh, should be fine. It, you know, the self-disclosures that have come out in the media have typically been in the multi-million dollars and a disclosure of, of that magnitude, of course, it makes sense to inform the, uh, the regulator. Okay. So at what point do you think, you know, you get a, a, a big company and it has a big uh, issue that's come up what would they typically do? You know, what would be best practice kind of scenario? Well, if a problem is identified, then, of course, the first thing to do is to work out what that problem is, and that will often entail getting advice from uh, AI Group or another expert about what the appropriate interpretations of the awards or enterprise agreements are. There'll also, of course, be the calculation of how much Uh, the underpayment is. And uh, as I mentioned, if the underpayment is uh, particularly significant, then 
it makes sense to give the Fair Work Ombudsman advice about uh, about that. There, there will be nothing worse than the issue coming out in, in the media in a big way and the Fair Work Ombudsman not uh, having a heads up about the issue so it's more of a it's more of a heads up it's sort of managing the information rather than some compliance issue and it I guess it also makes sense from a perspective of you know potential brand damage if you've found something like this it's obviously not deliberate um, and you get out there and you make a, a statement to the ombudsman they'll say thanks it's noted and you'll have said you're going to do something about it and I assume as part of that if it's a unionized workplace you'll have informed the union or discussed fixes Yes, and in, in terms of the Fair Work Ombudsman, with a, a number of these major organisations and even smaller organisations that have found significant problems with underpayments, the outcome of the process with the Fair Work Ombudsman will be uh, an enforceable undertaking or uh, some sort of compliance partnership where the, the business works with the Ombudsman to make sure that this sort of thing does not happen again and that the back pay is paid. And the, the terms of enforceable undertakings uh, often include you know, training and, and other things to, to make sure that uh, the, the problem isn't repeated. And just from your impression of dealing with a lot of these things, what sort of proportion do you think would be deliberate? Very few, and, and certainly not with major organisations. The, the sorts of things that we are discovering in our compliance work at AI Group, it's often things like people are treated as though they're on a salary when they're in a, uh, you know, a, a middle-ranking type role, when often awards will apply uh, to uh, those roles. And so, you know, underpayments have resulted in many cases so due to overtime provisions that are in awards not not being complied with or companies haven't identified allowances and loadings and so on separately. So these are the sorts of things that uh, have been uncovered with some of the, the, the recent uh, underpayment situations. Even the sort of situation where you think and someone has been enjoying a 15-minute break for years and someone doesn't pick up that they're now entitled to a 30-minute break after X hours work. That sort of stuff is easy to overlook. Yes, and one thing that a lot of people don't appreciate is the workplace relations system is incredibly complicated. We've got 122 modern awards. Often a company will have an enterprise agreement in addition to that. The modern awards overlap and uh, they're typically about 100 pages each. So it is a significant challenge for businesses to make sure that they are complying with awards in all respects, um, but it's not a, an issue that businesses can just assume that they're, uh, they're okay or that the pay rules that were appropriate five or ten years ago are still appropriate. It really is one of those issues where companies need to check. The environment has uh, got a lot uh, riskier in recent times. Okay. Now we'll go to Christian Porter, who's the Attorney General and Minister for Workplace Relations. And he's got some proposals for change and he's been talking to Sally McManus at the ACTU. What's, what's the government saying should be done and what's been our reaction to it, AI groups? Well, the government has put out a discussion paper on penalties and in that 
discussion paper, it flags... Pen penalties for... Um, uh, under penalties for underpayments. And in that discussion paper, it, it flags uh, criminal penalties for serious and, and deliberate underpayments, much higher civil penalties, for example, penalties that have some relationship with the turnover of a business or the extent of the breaches. Um, and th there's also another discussion paper coming shortly from the government about the process for dealing with underpayments. You know, what should the process be? And the, the ACTU has talked about giving the Fair Work Commission a much bigger role in this area. But there are some major constitutional problems. The Commission is not a court, it's a commission. It doesn't have any power to uh, impose penalties or to uh, interpret uh, the awards in, in, in a way that would lead to orders for companies to, to, to pay uh, amounts that might be owed. So uh, that, that's the role for a court. You know, we do have a small claims jurisdiction in the, the court system but all of these things will be looked at over the coming months as part of this upcoming uh, discussion paper. So, so what's your, you know, our group's reaction to the government moves in this area? What will we be saying to them? We're, we're not convinced that there is a problem. You know, when you look at recent developments, there's a, a lot of companies that have been identifying problems and fixing those problems. And the Fair Work Ombudsman in their latest annual report say, well, this is showing that the system is actually working. So we have a raft of courts with powers to deal with underpayments. We've got the federal uh, courts like the, the, the federal court, the federal circuit court. We've got state magistrates courts. We're not convinced that we need any more courts or uh, a role for the Commission that it appears the Constitution doesn't allow the Commission to have. Yeah, that's because it's not a, it's a, it's a Commission and not a court by its Constitution and the Constitution. Yes, and there's a very famous case from the 1950s that AI Group's predecessor was involved in called the Boilermakers case, which held that um, the Commission uh, doesn't exert and cannot exert judicial powers. That is a role for the court. And since that time, we've had a separation of the commission and the and the courts. Okay. And so how can AI group help? I mean, there's thousands of members and we're getting lots of calls, but are there some practical things that we can do if members have an issue? Yes, there's lots of assistance that AI group can give members um, in in this area. You know, members might like to start by looking at uh, their compliance with relevant awards, for example. So we can give advice either through AI Group or AI Group Workplace Lawyers uh, about what award provisions apply and how, sh how they should apply. Um, if uh, companies want auditing done of, uh, of their uh, practices, we can do that. We can assess payroll rules. Whatever assistance uh, employers might need in this area, we are well placed to provide. And last question on this, I know we've spent a lot of time on it, but it's a very big issue, is how far back do companies have to go? Is there a set limit? Well, there, there isn't a set limit on how far a company might wish to go, but the Fair Work Act does have a six-year limit on the amount of back pay that 
a court can order a company to, to pay. So, so six years is a, is a rough guide, but you don't necessarily legally have to go back that far? Well, if it, legally, you would have to go back at least six years because that's what a court could right. order the employer to, to pay. Fair enough. Okay. Now, the two other issues, because we are running out of time. Um, the next one is the reforms to class action laws. Now, there's, as many of our members would have read, there has been an explosion in class action lawsuits over the last few years, since about 2013. And a lot of this is happening because of overseas litigation funders getting into the market. First of all, you know, why is this happening? And, you know, members got a, much to worry about. I think members do have a lot to worry about in this area because these overseas litigation funders have moved into Australia in a a big way, and the reason for that is probably that our class action laws are very lax compared to those that apply, say, in the UK or the US. Um, there is no regulation here of litigation funders other than whatever regulation the, the courts may wish to impose. Um, and, you know, really we need a a number of reforms in this area. The, the number of class actions have increased rapidly over the past couple of years. And these aren't uh, claims about things that the companies don't need to worry about. For example, there are eight class actions going on at the moment about the meaning of a casual employee where uh, these uh, plaintiff law firms backed by litigation funders are arguing for many years of back pay of annual leave for employees who've been engaged as casuals and paid um, a special loading or additional compensation as a casual. So that sort of thing could also spread to the entire workforce, couldn't it, and all employers? Yes. Uh, you know, AI Group has calculated just on annual leave alone for those casuals that have worked regularly for at least six months, there is $8 billion worth of cost risk there for employers on, on that issue alone. But these class actions are being pursued around uh, a raft of things, including uh, you know, whether a person is an independent contractor or an employee. And there are a lot of class actions about non-IR related matters. But the IR issues are very important because the Fair Work Act um, provides that parties generally pay their own costs in the Fair work uh, uh, matters that go before the courts. And this is particularly attractive to a litigation funder because if they don't have to run the risk of uh, an adverse cost order at the end of the litigation, it's, it's uh, potentially very lucrative. Okay, so, so when we see normal court cases and they say, oh yes, both this party has lost, it's a spurious claim, they should pay the $5 million that the company paid, in this case, Company A would have to pay that five million. Would not be able to get that money back, and they could, even if they won the case, they could be well out of pocket. Well, fortunately, the the courts are starting to see what's going on here, and in a recent case, uh, the the federal court has decided that the class action and uh, the litigation funding arrangements shouldn't be able to benefit from that cost shield, if you like, under the Fair Work Act. But 
you know, we do need legislative change in this area to protect businesses and to protect the plaintiffs in, in this matter because uh, if a large part of any settlement goes to a litigation funder or and or a plaintiff law firm, that is money that is not going to the, uh, the, the parties that have allegedly uh, suffered harm. So, so what sort of percentage breakup would there be in terms of how much money goes to the, the, the wronged person, if you like, in a case where a company's found to be at fault? Yes, well, there, there have been a, a number of uh, reports over recent years that have looked at this sort of thing, but a recent Australian Law Reform Commission report that has considered class actions in Australia over the last five or six years found that where a litigation funder has been involved, the median return to the plaintiffs was only 51%. When a litigation funder was not involved, the median return was 85%. So these developments are benefiting litigation funders, but they're certainly not benefiting businesses, they're not benefiting the uh, plaintiffs, and they're not benefiting the community, and the, the government needs to act quickly on this before it uh, gets completely out of hand. Okay, well, you can read in the report all the recommendations we're making to the federal government on this, but perhaps just, just one, these overseas litigation funders are basically treated differently to any other group that lends money. So they're not monitored by ASIC. So what are we asking the government to do in terms of the view of litigation funders and their monitoring? Well, like any other provider of financial products, these businesses should be regulated uh, as a, a financial organisation through uh, ASIC, and uh, that's uh, what we're trying to achieve. So they can do things like, you know, a bank couldn't offer a secret commission, a bank couldn't do all sorts of things. They're very highly regulated, but what's the regulation on these funds? Well, at the moment, they're not regulated. So litigation funding arrangements need to be regulated and that reform needs to be introduced without delay. Also, we need legislation that requires that returns to litigation funders and plaintiff law firms be reasonable. And uh, obviously there's some debate that could occur about what is reasonable and what is not. But the sorts of um, terms that are going in these uh, uh, litigation funding agreements are, in our view, not reasonable at all. Okay. And last one, and we'll quickly go through this. It's the Government Discussion Paper on Project Life Greenfields Agreements. So Australian Constructors Association and AI Group made a joint submission to the Attorney-General's Department on the, their paper, Attracting Major Infrastructure Resources and Energy Projects to Increase Employment, and it's all about Greenfields Agreement. So we perhaps just give us in a nutshell what we're after, what we're getting the government to change about uh, Greenfields Agreements over the life of a project. Yes, well, they, this hopefully will not be controversial. In fact, the background to it was a speech that the opposition leader, Bill Shorten, gave just before the last election where the opposition expressed some support for Project Life Greenfields Agreements. Uh, fortunately, the, the current government said that's a good idea and they put out a discussion paper. But if you take the Snowy Hydro 2.0 project, for example, that project is projected to continue for five to six years 
years, a, a major nation building project. Um, it's not in anyone's interests in uh, AI Group's view for the enterprise agreements on that project to expire at a critical stage of construction. Why shouldn't the employer and the relevant employees be able to sit down with, you know, with the, the relevant unions and agree on a, uh, an enterprise agreement that will continue for the life of the project? It would have to be approved by the Commission, etc. Um, it, it should be a, a no-brainer. It's a very sensible proposition. Because at the moment there's a power imbalance, isn't there, with this current situation? Yes. Well, there, there's a four-year maximum term for enterprise agreements, but also we want a few other changes to address this issue where, where unions have a, a huge uh, power imbalance um, when it comes to negotiating Greenfields agreements because the, the head contractor needs to have an agreement in place before they can start work on the project to manage industrial risk. And there, there are a few changes that need to be made to address that issue. Great, okay. And um, so we're now going to, um, we've got our submission in there and we'll hear from the government on that. Is it also something that could have implications for other than Greenfields agreements, agreements generally? Yes, well, what we're asking for is that for agreements on major projects, they should be able to go for more than the four years if the project continues for longer than four years. Because yes, uh, that is an important change for Greenfields agreements, but the reality is a lot of the work carried out on major projects is carried out through regular enterprise agreements, not just Greenfields agreements. Great. Okay, we'll leave it there. This has been a podcast discussing the AI Group's significant workplace relations issues of the month. And it's the full members-only report that you'll want to look at is available on our website at aigroup.com.au under Workplace Relations Policy and Advocacy. And thanks to Stephen Smith, National Workplace Relations Head at AI Group. That's all for now. See you next time.